where the advisors come in and say, let's go hire eight of your friends to go out and do steak dinners. Um, <laughs> I mean, that, and this was a long time ago, right? Um, yeah. That model, I don't think works as much anymore. So scale into it appropriately. And this would be a wild idea. What if you actually scaled when you had pipeline and forecast and something for someone to actually go chase down and have work first? This is Bare Knuckles and Brass Tacks, the cybersecurity podcast that tackles the vendor-customer relationship and everything in between. I'm George K. with the vendor side. And I'm George A., a Chief Information Security Officer. And today, our guest is Jason Carrico, a veteran enterprise sales leader and host of the podcast, All That Salesy Stuff. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I know we've been talking about this for a while. Really looking forward to it. I love the show. Yeah. Yeah, well, thank you. Um, avid listener, like to have you in the hot seat. So let's start with the journey into cyber. Just give us the the two-minute autobiography. Yeah, so I think um, in thinking about that, I'm, I'm going to go back. So I want to go a little bit farther back. There was no cyber. So I graduated from the University of Houston and with a marketing degree, and they had their first sales program. And I got out, and while everybody else was getting a real job, uh, I had a job cold calling at a company that sold for AS 400 security. Uh, mm. It was up in an attic and next to the bathroom. So I'd have to sort <laughs> of call between flushes and stuff like that. I was lucky <laughs> enough to have a great job uh, at a restaurant that was able to supplement my income. So that was kind of like my intro journey into cyber. Um, it wasn't called cyber. There were no CISOs. Mm -hmm. uh, there was no cloud uh, to be had. Um, we can talk about that a little bit later, but I think that kind of helped um, kind of mold my career because I was able to get into it, make mistakes, you know, learn and then expand. And so since then, been doing it for about 20 plus years. Nice. All right. Well, you are, as we all know, on the sales side, which means George A is going to kick us off. I'm really excited to have you on here, man. Uh, you know, we met you at Black Hat, uh, or, or I think George knew you before that probably, but uh, I met you at Black Hat. I thought you were super cool. Um, you, you know, immediately, you immediately came off as someone who was very genuine. And, you know, I was looking forward to kind of have an opportunity to like either have you on the show or work together or something. So I'm excited that we were able to make this happen. I loved your energy. Um, and, you know, honestly, it's great to have you here. Uh, I've been looking forward to speaking with a forward-thinking uh, CRO type person like yourself uh, for some time. Now, and I'm kind of wondering, you know, for for a first question to start this off, if you could walk us through how you, as a sales leader from enterprises as large as Microsoft to some of the smaller scale startups that you've worked for, have you found a uh, a formula for scalably teaching good customer relationship management to your teams? in spite of the never ending pressures, I'm sure you must face to just, you know, straight up make quota. Yeah. So that's a good question. And the lead in, I think was one of the most important parts. Um, I think what it starts with is the fact that it's an overused term, this idea of bringing genuine authenticity to what you do. Mm -hmm. So I'll say that what you sort of learn through the processes, you start off with this idea of like, okay, so we've had this hardcore sales training and, you know, you get your sales training and then you sort of do tips and tricks and tactics. And then as you do it a while, you realize that basically 
every scenario is unique. And that's what makes cybersecurity, I think, even more interesting than a lot of other fields, because that's what you have to try to start to figure out. Um, what works, what doesn't work. Um, there's the standard processes that I think almost everybody's going to be trained at in the sales side, but then you have to mold it to the type of product you're selling, uh, the type of buyers, really understanding those buyers. And I talk to a lot of CROs and a lot of founders uh, and a lot of startups, and I just don't know if you can necessarily replicate that. Mm -hmm. um, but I do know that it's something that you can usually tell, right? Even within conversations, regardless of whether or not it's in sales or whatever it might be. So I've really sort of um, dove into that more because I've had more time to sort of dig into that and, and try to help figure that out a little bit more than I used to. So, I mean, realistically though, there's a skill set to it, but it's like, I think what we're really impressed with is your ability to scale it and across yep. different types of client types, different types of organizations. And, you know, I think the pressures that folks in those organizations, depending on the type of ownership, whether it's public, private equity, whether it's like a single owner, I feel like the culture, the sales culture that's set is really what kind of defines the success of the organization and of the employees that they hire to learn how to sell properly. Because if you get a brand new seller and they work for a toxic shop, their career is off to mm. a bad start. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, it, it, it's it's one of those things that we just had our podcast and we talked a little bit about the idea of like, um, maybe it's not possible to never feel salesy, right? So let's just start with that. Let's start mm -hmm. with this idea that um, you at some point in your career and everybody's going to do it. And I'm going to talk a little bit about why I think that's important to be able to give people the ability to fail, right? You are going to feel salesy, right? I have this, all that salesy stuff podcast sort of like a, as a poke at that, right? So it's kind of how you deal with that. And there's different ways to deal with it. I mean, I've been in organizations where there's the throwing chairs and the people getting upset, right? And the other <laughs> pieces, but a lot of what it comes down to is the more you can just sort of chill out a little bit, um, you know, and, and look at and tackle things as they come. I always talk about basically um, knocking down barriers or blockades whenever they come and sort of dealing with them that way. I think the better organizations I've been at have done that. So, you know, if you build a process and you're going to trust that process, you also have to trust the results. Then you also have to be willing to pivot change and modify some of the results. And those results are influenced as much by the founders and the VCs and the CEOs as anybody else. So a lot of that time, if you're saying it's that toxic culture or whatever it might be that happens, I have a ton of respect for the, the people that are founders because they have to meet certain goals in, ever to, in order to be able to move to that next level. And a lot of times this is either their first time doing it or it's something that they're trying out, right? So they are trying these different things um, and then some of them aren't going to be successful and then you're going to have failures. I mean, it's just, it's just yeah. part of the game. Yeah. Okay. So I dig that. And this is the bare knuckles part of the show. So I'm going to, we're going to unleash a little bit here. So you have heard us talk a lot about outreach issues, maybe poor tactics we've seen. And clearly those are springing from deeper issues. So I think from your experience, I would like to understand what might some of those issues be? I think we've danced around a few of them. We've talked about mm -hmm. culture. Are there anything else like organizationally you see that might contribute to 
you know, the tactics that we get talked about on this show. Yeah. I kind of want to get specific. Let's talk about it at the, at the very specific high level. Mm-hmm. Um, in this particular industry, there's no specific market leaders. So let's just start off and say like where that, what that means. That means there's 3,500 to 5,000 potential different vendors that are trying to solve very unique problems. So just based on the way that the industry is set up, if you can, if you look at it compared to typical it spend, you know, typical it spend, there's going to be three or four clear vendors in a space, right? If Mm. George is working at a company and they're buying a phone system, they don't have 500 different phone systems to choose from. If he's buying email security, I could probably make the argument. He might have 500 different companies to choose from. So let's start with the idea at first is it's a very large market with no clear winners. I think the three largest companies barely make up even 7% of it. So what happens is you have a whole lot of smaller companies that then have to go out and differentiate. So that leads me to the next point. So now you have to find some sort of creative way to differentiate. Now, guess what? You're also differentiating with buyers whose job is to protect the organization and are inherently untrusting of the solutions that you're offering. So all those, that sales training that I have, where I've gone out there and said, relating it to a customer problem, understanding the pains, all those other things. When you first come into cyber security or whatever we're going to call it, that doesn't work as well as it does in other industries. So that Mm -hmm. has a lot to do with how that happens. And then the other thing too, if you really think about it, because I think about this before the, the, the call, um, this industry creates a lot of wealthy people. I mean, there's a lot of billionaires. It's hard to say that we're necessarily failing when the people on the money side of it would look and say, well, you know, these companies are still selling for a couple hundred million dollars. They're still getting very large BC equity checks when companies in other spaces like B2C or heaven forbid real estate or all these other areas Mm. are having a hard time getting funding. So they're still getting funding. There's a whole lot of companies. They have to try to be able to differentiate and they have to be able to try to make a splash in the market, I guess, is kind of the best way to to describe it. How do you differentiate yourself and and kind of how you present your, your, I don't want to say your MVP, your unique value proposition, like ultimately if you're past like the startup point, that's really going to be, you know, your ability to communicate an accurate story, to have the culture that backs that story. And then, you know, the authenticity piece comes into the fact that the individuals who are actually carrying that flag can connect with prospects and with their clients and then maintain those relationships. Like I, um, <clears throat> I just actually got back right before this from a lunch with um, one of my longtime suppliers. We, they recently just had a staff turnover, like our, our usual, um, the old account executive there moved on to a different company. The new guy just got hired. I think it's like week two or three on the job for him. Um, my other, like my engineer support there, he got promoted. Congratulations to him. He's a good friend of mine, but you know, him and I ended up taking what was supposed to be just a one hour lunch and it ended up going over two hours. Um, mm-hmm. because you know, we like the actual business part of the thing that we needed to work through was probably five minutes. We probably could have done a Slack message exchange <laughs> and figured it out. <laughs> but at the end of the day, it's like, you're one of my main suppliers and, uh, we have to work together. Like you got to be my partner. I got to be your partner, right? We need each other to succeed. If you cannot convey that, if you in that moment, he had, he had one, one meeting, let's say one lunch to try to win me over that he was worth actually having a relationship with. 
And if he drops the ball on that, it potentially jeopardizes a very you know lucrative relationship for him. I think a lot of folks, um, depending on the culture, don't really have the ability kind of to calm down in the pocket and just this is where we're talking about humanizing the thing. We're like, we all understand kind of the game of what we're doing. As George and I talk about just like recognizing the dance and then getting over it. Right. So it, it kind of goes like, you know, to the, to the next question. It's just funny because I hear you talk about it. It's like, man, I literally was just on a, in a sales meeting and this was actually, it's good that you bring these things up. Now, from what I understand, George told me that you get brought in often to be a bit of a fixer for other company sales organizations, which by the way, I think is really cool. What is your process for assessing and identifying blockers and growth opportunities for your clients? And would you say that, you know, you have a quote formula that you try to generally implement when you're getting those opportunities? Yeah. So they typically get brought in with founders. So what I'm really trying to focus on is that early stage. And I looked at the whole problem and thought about how can I look at improving it sort of at the beginning? So these earlier stages seed, maybe they've brought in a few different salespeople and it hasn't been successful. Uh, And I Mm -hmm. look at it from the perspective of the problem is we generally believe that in order back to these tips and tricks and tactics, that they overhire and they try to sell their way out of problems. So that's that's the first piece. So yep. a lot of what I'm dealing with is what I'm going to call founder-led sales. And they're new to it. And I think to your exact point, it's hard for them because that one meeting is so important and that ability to fail isn't really there. So when I started, I think part of the part of what made it good is that there wasn't this there weren't podcasts, there wasn't LinkedIn, there wasn't all these other things where sellers get flambéed all the time, which is reasonable and fair. But you're listening to these founders now that are going out there and trying to do this, and it's usually their first time. So the first part I do, and it's not necessarily a process, it's just this whole idea of, I I talk about, you know, I give them a book uh, that talks about it called The Unsold Mindset that says, okay, you don't have to be a salesperson. There is no such thing as a salesperson hat. Like you're, you're not, you're not going to put that on. You just be yourself and go out there and and that's what helps sell the organization. And that's what people are going to connect to. Um, as, as far as a process goes, I will say the first thing that I typically look at is the first 50 to 100 meetings. So throughout my entire career, no matter what I've done, leader, or whatever, I have a list. I used to be in an Excel spreadsheet now, but red, yellow, green of the types of meetings we had. You might've been yellow before I went and met you. And I realized then that exa- if I was in that same scenario, Hopefully afterwards you would be green and you would be somebody that I could, you're a customer of mine, you're somebody that, you know, I can go out and work with and get information from and have a real relationship. Uh, So I do that. I look at the first 50 to 100 meetings and then regardless of what the system is, some sort of system that allows them to get feedback from that. Because if you go out and you meet 100 individuals and none of them are interested in what you're offering, you don't even have a pipeline in the first place. You got to go reset and all those things we talked about. right, of rebuilding. I'm usually sort of in that stage. Um, so yeah, that's kind of how I look at it. And the process is just going to be some way to gather feedback and some way to act upon that feedback. And there's multiple tools you can use for that, right? And then the other bigger thing is for the George K side is then dump a boatload of money into marketing and events and areas that allow you to continue that feedback um, to get more information. And part of that too is if you are an advisor, this is if these companies that they have these strategic advisors that'll be on their boards, 
the people that do that need to give real feedback. They need to use the product. They need to understand the product. Uh, and they should take that role seriously. A lot of times I find that it'll be they'll have strategic advisors and they just show up for a board meeting and give their opinion about how sales outreach stinks, you know, and kill cold calling mm -hmm. or whatever, stuff like that. What these founders really need is product feedback, understanding, like relationship introductions, things like that. So those are the things that I typically focus on. I really dig that idea of continuous feedback. Um, you know, I have seen a lot of really early stage startups try to rapidly scale. They they are told, right, they get the A or the B round. It's like, all right, it's a ramp up revenue operations. And they take that to mean, you know, hire a bunch of sellers, outsource BDRs. Like they think that this, the scale of the sales team is the answer. Meanwhile, maybe the product hasn't even been battle tested or maybe they've just come out of like design partner phase and, you know, they're just not getting enough and to your point, if nobody's interested after 100 meetings, maybe you have a, a product or an engineering issue that's not necessarily, quote unquote, sales issue. Um, product market to, fit. It has to have yeah. market in the middle. So there's product yeah. side and people skip over the market fit part. Oh, we yeah, got you're also the, you, yeah, you might also be the first sales leader who I've ever heard say, give more money to marketing. <laughs> so this takes me to my question, which is... Um, I'm interested in what is a grievance that you might have from the sales side that doesn't get enough airplay. And I want it from two angles. So the first is between sales and other teams internally, like inside of a company. And the second is what is a grievance that you think doesn't get enough airplay that's between sellers and buyers? So I want to start by saying um, I'm sort of negative on negativity. So let me just phrase it that oh, way. I, the, I dig the, it. I dig the that. negativity part is exactly what you're talking about. And I think that's that's a part of it because there is going to be a negativity between, oh, this email was written crappy or this marketing person mm -hmm. sent us to an event. I mean, I've been there, right? Like this marketing person sent me to an event and I stood all by myself the entire time, didn't get a single lead from it. Ah, uh, right. Let's just, and you got a couple ways you can deal with that. You can move on and see the value of it, right? Or you can't. So that's the first part. And then the other thing is that these things don't happen in a vacuum. So this is my other, I guess, complaint is that when someone... Uh, flambés or flambés or whatever, right? A rep for sending out emails. You know this, George. Okay, that these things don't happen in a vacuum. These are mm -hmm. what's happened is in the advent of Salesforce, really changed our whole sales dynamic. Now is that now everybody has access to the information. They're creating these emails. They're sending out this information. It's coming from down, right? VCs to founders to CROs to marketing to sales. So I think what doesn't get focused on enough is that. It's not that individual that just grad spent a hundred thousand dollars on college and just graduated two years ago and put together the worst email in the world that they're reading <laughs> and then they get torched. Um, that happened as part of a much bigger process. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. All right. I dig that. George, do you have something you want to add before we take a break? I was more thinking about like, you know, I always wonder when they send when they send sales folks out to some of these events and, you know, I just feel like, and I'm not talking about the booth Benny thing where you go to the big shows and it's just like, you clearly don't work for the company and this is just a contract and you might as well, you know, be a, be a beer promo girl or whatever. Like it's the same, it's the same racket, just like a different venue. Right. And then George and I have like teared that down before, but I feel, I feel genuinely bad for sellers who genuinely want to make relationships at these events 
but I don't feel like they are empowered or equipped for success either with the collateral that they receive or with the actual training that, you know, gets imparted to them or not imparted to them before they actually go hit the floor. Cause I, yeah. I've gone to some events where it's like, I know that there's like, okay, like this company's going to be there. I'm interested in their product. I'm already kind of warm going into it, but then the seller just seems exhausted because it's, it's an exhausting experience and they totally just end up fucking up the interaction mm-hmm. and I like lose interest. How could that be avoided, man? Cause that's just like, <laughs> I feel like that's a self ownage. Attention to detail and execution. I don't know a better way to say it. Like attention to detail is attention to detail of understanding the message, understanding the product. Let's just have a prep ahead of time where I would come to you if, if you were the person on the floor in that situation and say, how would George A describe this product in the hallway to other people within the organization? Based on the luncheon you had today, for example, right? That person can go back to their organization and say, I had a great conversation uh, with George A. Here's sort of how he described the product, which is probably different than the way the company does internally. Ooh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and practice that. Here's the other weird part of it, right? Practice it. Yeah, rehearsal. Yeah. Okay, there you go. He's got it. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I also think, um, coming back to this idea of that first impression and that first interaction or whatever it is, you if you view it that way, if you view that's the golden opportunity, then I think it's logical to think that your sales team's attention span is a finite and very valuable resource. So I'm going to take a quick thing about the booth strategy when they want to reduce T&E costs and they just send like two people to man an RSA booth for, you know, like three days to the end of the day, they just can't hold it together. I mean, they're human beings. And if you wanted to get more out of the event, you know, I think the counterintuitive approach is you actually got to send more people because they got to have the energy. They got to be a cycle out. They got to be able to like take notes, kind of get it out of their brain, decompress and get back in. Um, Because yeah, sure. I mean, if if George A is just happens to be at the end of the day because he had all these other meetings, like why blow it, right? Um, yeah, cool. All right, well we'll take a break there, and uh, we will be back for brass tacks. Hey, listeners, George K here. In one week, I'll be joining a panel discussion on AI and cyber defense at the Forum in Cyber North America in beautiful Montreal, October twenty fifth and twenty sixth. I've got a 50% off discount code exclusively for Bare Knuckles and Brass Tacks listeners. If you're interested in attending the conference, DM me on LinkedIn. I hope to see you there. Jason, what is your recommendation for sellers on operating rhythm and building pipeline? And I will I will qualify that. So do you have a prescription for the breakdown of time? Like how much of your day should be spent on managing your relationships, working your existing deals, outreach efforts, maybe block it off by days. I don't I just want to get a sense of like when you're building these teams or you're trying to train people like how, there's a lot that a seller has to do. There's generate new, there's manage existing, there's forecast. How are you like breaking down all those activities? So I, I want to start with the most important piece that manages revenue, which would be forecast. Mm-hmm. So it all starts with forecast accuracy. I've been lucky enough that I've worked for some great VPs of sales and some excellent organizations um, that have taught me this throughout the process, but um, or throughout my career. 
Forecast accuracy can drive everything. So what I mean by that is that if you're going to define your very first meeting and you're going to put $100,000 into the system and you're going to put it <laughs> at the wrong, right? You laugh because you know you've seen it. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> if I have a meeting with George A and I have a great meeting with him and it, it's incorrectly set up in the system, then you're spending time on the wrong things. So let's start with that. So you, you want to spend your time on the things that are farther down the line and end of quarter, end of year, setting up for next quarter, whatever that might be. And I'm going to have a, a take that's probably not going to be as popular for you guys or the people that listen on the show, but I'm not going to take as much time on the relationship side uh, because that's a pitfall that can happen to a lot of people where you go back to those comfortable conversations and you've probably seen this and stuff will be in the forecast forever. And you don't really have great forecast accuracy there because what you have is a relationship and those are great and you need them. And that's how you get other areas of the business. But you also have to be able to go out there and look for new business as well. So I don't, there are breakdowns and I will tell you the breakdowns mm -hmm. in time are very important for SDRs, BDRs, things like that. I feel we, we over pivot on the top of the funnel. And we don't focus as much on the middle of the funnel, which especially for enterprise sales or, or larger uh, sales is very important. So yeah, that's the hardest you, part. That's the hardest right. part. It's the most protracted part. It's where all the complication occurs. Like it got stuck in procurement or they couldn't get whatever. Yeah, I get you. I was going to say though, but that's part of your job, like as a sales pro, especially if I'm a prospect or if you're trying to upsell me on like an expansion of the account, right? Like, where we have to be a team, like me as the mm -hmm. like sponsoring practitioner and you as the seller, you need to equip me with the information I need with the various stakeholders that I have to win over. We have I to have it. a substantive conversation about timeline, like relationships. Yep. Great. But I'm in the same boat as you, man. Like my time is real limited. It's quite valuable. So like I might like you as a person, but I only got so much time <laughs> today to hang with friends yeah. and I might like you like as a seller as well. If your product is something I want and we have to win over certain key stakeholders, I need your help to equip me to win them over. Because if you fail to do that, no matter how much I want it, I've rarely, if ever, met a CISO who has independent purchasing power without having to go through someone else's alignment or blessing or buy-in. So I think that's like a big component of the business of sales that doesn't really get stressed on enough. It's like not just the person you're talking to, but who do they have to win over? Because then I have to become your sales champion inside my own organization to close the friggin' deal. Yeah, and that goes back to forecast management. So let me exactly there. So I'm bringing value. I've pegged you as somebody that we have a over 50% chance in. So now I've segmented that out in my top list of 50 with my red, yellow, and green. You're certainly green at this point or my top 100 or whatever you're looking at. And when you're looking at that forecast and you're saying, oh, and, and to your point, I don't know how much time I have to put aside on that. I know that I need to be able to give freedom to the people that are doing this to have the time to do that, to say, I, you know, how long is it going to take to build an ROI? Who are the different decision makers within the organization? Is it possible that, that George is going to allow me to meet them? And then by meeting them, I, am I going to have to go through these iterations again? And you'd be amazed at how much, time that takes within the process. And the difference is you can either spend your cycles working through that, or you can spend your cycles thinking about why SDRs and BDRs and outreach doesn't work. 
there's not enough time to do both. So if you're going to have mm -hmm. a one hour meeting, you can either talk about like how we move things along. I had a great uh, VP of sales and sort of mentor of mine who basically moved on and said, okay, we're only talking stuff moving forward. That's it. I'll give you 10 minutes to go through all the stuff that didn't work. And then we move on from there. As a sales leader, how do you find that you can effectively change C-suite or ownership perspectives to become more qualitative and not exactly just quantitative, quantitatively metrics driven, right? Because yeah. again, it's about the balance between relationship and yeah. delivery. So the joke I always made at the beginning when, when as cybersecurity was coming up and it wasn't even cybersecurity is I'd sort of make the joke of like, I'm just wheeling in a cash machine at this point because I went to the Verizon study and found out that each breach costs an average of $3.2 million. So I don't know if you remember this, you guys were both mm -hmm. probably around when all these were coming out. So I'm going to make this ROI model based on cost of breach, $20 million, my products only 100,000, boobity boom, great, right? That doesn't necessarily work. Uh, as you know, so I love to use the word team. So it has to be a team effort in the way that you define value within the organization, what type of risk model you have. Do you have a hard ROI or a soft ROI? Um, hard ROI might be like a product replacement, right? Or something where you're taking away something that you would have to pay for in order to pay for someone to actually do that. Um, so you kind of have to look at that. I've found that soft ROI is really difficult. When I was replacing products, you know, working with organizations, replacing millions of dollars of products, there was a pretty good hard ROI there that I could sort of hone in on. Um, to your point, George, I think you have to help define what that is. And then the other part that's hard about this industry, if we're going all the way back to some of the complaints, is that you really nailed it. Um, there isn't one decision maker anymore. And usually it's the CISO that's part of a broader budget that you have to figure yep. out and how do you interact with that? And does the CISO, and this is the job of salespeople, does the CISO even have a relationship with that buyer where they even like each other, man? Like I've been in, I've been in plenty of meetings where the, the, the purchase, the, the purchasing person and the other groups they're in, they're in conflict. So you sort of navigate that, that part as well. Yeah. And I think that goes back to the thing you first said about how hard it is to just have like a templated playbook and you have to adapt, right? To each account that you're working in that middle part of the funnel may have a different internal culture around how they're going to measure efficacy or ROI. And you kind of have to pivot to to each one, right? Because they're, they're different cultures. They have different organizational strengths. Um Cool. So for startups looking to grow revenue and, you know, they're being told you got to scale and you got to do it fast. Um, what are your top two pieces of, of advice on how to scale a sales strategy? I've, I've seen a lot of copy paste and I'm beginning to suspect that that model is not working any longer. Just as you said, this like single minded focus on the IC the CISO is like hard because if, Marketing only does all of its messaging in that direction and isn't helping sales get George to talk effectively with CIOs and CFOs, you know, that's a miss. So what are your piece of advice for scaling a sales strategy as you're, as you're brought in? So, I mean, first off, I kind of work off the idea of I've been trained in all the different sales methodologies, right? And it's kind of a lot of times where I'll say why I hate triangles. Because I think the easiest <laughs> thing to do is take whatever sales methodology you have in, in, the, in the Maslow's triangle there and apply it to that and say, well, what you do is you work up and then you find out what the personal need is and then you kind of move on, right? So I bring a lot of different ideas from various different 
sales trainings that I've had. And then I sort of apply it where I think it's most useful. And where I'm at right now is more in that nailing product market fit side. So if you're talk, going to talk about mm -hmm. the two things I think that are one of the most important parts is it's a term that's used a lot now, this idea of founder led sales. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when you're working with founders, it's this idea of let them go through all of it and understand like, you know, getting ghosted in meetings. They, they need to know that they need to understand why that happens. Going to events and being one of those two people in a booth where nobody shows up and they've got to sort of wing it and figure it out. So I think there's this idea of, of product market fit um, and really nailing that back to just the basics of messaging. Like what would the messaging mm -hmm. be? This is back to the, why I talked about dumping a lot of money into marketing. Um, somebody above 70% of someone's perception about an organization is going to be built before they even take their first meeting with sales. So then intuitively you would think you should, you should pivot and spend money on those things that are going to affect someone's thought mm -hmm. process around your solution, being a thought leader, taking a point of view, you know, doing webinars, being on LinkedIn, all those parts of things. So number one would be product market fit. And then as you're doing that, really dig into those details and the details, meaning like a way to be able to track it. You'd be surprised at how many companies move along and they get the first few sets of customers and they don't have anything that they've tracked or managed or figured out about those customers that they can then replicate. So we're yeah. talking like before you get to that, go out. And, the, and then of, of those two, what you don't want to try to do is follow those playbooks that you talked about. And believe me, I've done this. So I was responsible for hundreds of thousands of dollars of <laughs> outbound spend that didn't, that didn't, didn't get any results. I've sat in the boardroom where the advisors come in and say, let's go hire eight of your friends to go out and do steak dinners. Um, <laughs> I mean, that, and this was a long time ago, right? Um, yeah. that model, I don't think works as much anymore. So scale into it appropriately. And this would be a wild idea. What if you actually scaled when you had pipeline and forecast and something for someone to actually go chase down and have work first? Yes. I think I like that. I really love the founder part because it goes, George A is always talking about empathy, right? And if the founders don't understand what it's like to be ghosted or exhausted at the booth, then they they're alienated from the sales team. They're like, why can't they just go out and do this? Right. That's I've, I've yeah. also heard that. And well, yeah, you're a salesperson. Just go out. That, 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 that's been told to me. That's kind of where I came up with the term. Just go out there and do all that salesy stuff. Use your spidey sense. Yeah, like that, that happens on the practitioner side. I've been talking to a lot of um, CISOs of late. Like I literally had this whole trip to Ireland. I was like me and like, like 10 or 15 other CISOs. We all just like went into this big tour. It was fun. Um, and one of the consensus things, cause most everyone that was on that trip had an operations background, you know, and I find if you're dealing with a senior security practitioner, especially if they're on the decision-making side, um, there's a whole world of a different conversation when they have an operations background versus when they're just pure GRC, or if somehow they went from like a sales organization and now they're in like a CISO role which sometimes does happen and it's, that's fucking insane, but it's a thing. It happens. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. So if they don't actually have the empathy of having like done the thing that they're in charge of doing, it's real hard to work with the man. And I think it's probably the same thing in sales where if you're dealing with startup founders or owners who have not actually tried to craft and deliver the narrative of the thing that they built, they're just going to be really frustrated and probably kind of shitty to work with if you're trying to sell their product, like you said. 
Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Um, so I, I kind of want to say though, like, I guess as a, as a, my last question on the brass tax, you know, is there ever a point as a sales professional when you have to accept that the culture at an organization simply doesn't align? Like, when do you know you're at that place where it's like, Hey, I got to tap out. This just isn't for me. And how quick are you to decide, you know, when to stay and when to go? Of course, uh, on my podcast, we talk about it as the ripcord moment. Ooh, of course. Dig it. It's okay. You know, of course, um, I've had it, uh, you know, so yes, there, there absolutely is a point when that happens. Um, and yeah, I mean, you just know, and, and it's usually prompted with the idea of, I'll tell you what some of my prompts are. Uh, if you don't get this deal or your team doesn't get this deal, um, you're going to be done. So I had a ripcord moment long time ago where I was just like, well, I'm not showing up on Monday. So great. Right. Like we know where we're at on this. Like I don't mm -hmm. tie myself necessarily if I've done the process and I've done all the things or the team's done all the things, then you kind of know. And then the other interesting part is the person who said that also wasn't there six months later. Right. And I understand that they're coming through the same pressure and the people above them are the same pressure. So these people rotate. We all rotate in and out of jobs for a while. And that rotation is not always just purely set up by the company. It's the, those people have had those kind of moments. So yeah, that absolutely happens. Yeah. I think anytime you start veering into that, like absolutist zero sum do this, or it's a, I mean, I don't know how you expect to get the best out of anybody when you, you know, back them up against the wall like that. I, I think, man, like, it's just like, again, we, we draw the parallel between the sales profession, the security profession, and just like real life you know, whether it's intimate relationships or friendships, if you start doing black and white thinking, you are aiming to get real bad results. Because I don't know anyone that puts forth ultimatums or that looks at the world in such a way and you lack the nuance, man. You're just, you're, you're asking for a bad time, I find. It doesn't matter where in life you're doing it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's such a good point because I think it's also true on the practitioner side. If, 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 if you have an ultimatum that you've received one bad email from a company and they might have a great product and you're never going to talk to them again, that's also a line. And that poor person who's coming in later down the road didn't know that that founder may have messed that up six months ago. Right. Oh yeah. Yeah. I've been on the, I've been on the other side of those calls. So that's uh, always a good time. <laughs> oh, I've you know, I'm, I'm, re I'm usually responsible for managing them. So, you know, <laughs> <laughs> got it. Okay. So how do we work through this? Sweet. Right on. You know, <laughs> you were in a sequence, you were in a bad sequence set up by HubSpot. And I know you're in a proof of concept right now. And you got seven emails accidentally sent out by marketing. Uh, and <laughs> sorry, I will go uncheck that. <laughs> facts. Facts. Nice. Well, and if we have a guest coming up who had that experience, right? He was uh or maybe still is an sdr and he called and the guy was like look i i dig your vibe but now's not the time i got this situated and then all right cool we can either objection handle or as uh chris future guest said is like okay well how could i do this better so i think if you just have that level of curiosity and you just give a little bit of slack then and now a relationship that on the surface was a little bit contentious between a buyer and a seller is is now one of practically mentorship which is you know extraordinary in this industry so yeah i definitely take your point there about empathy and sympathy <laughs> just like in life right to george's yeah. george's point just like in life 
right? I mean, yeah, it, yeah. it's the same way that happens with all types of people that, you know, you weren't, you weren't friends with, and then I didn't know somebody very well. And now he's my neighbor and all of a sudden we're buddies, right? <laughs> See him around town before, never really hung out with him, you know, had some preconceived notions or whatever. And now he's one of my best friends. I mean, you know, awesome. it's just like in life. Yeah. Well, Jason, thank you very much for the time. Again, we've been going back and forth for a long time on scheduling, but I'm really glad we made this happen because I feel like we got into some like really juicy, meaty stuff here. Yeah. Th thank you for having me. I've been wanting to come on for a while. So this has been awesome. I appreciate it. Oh, dude, you were driving nothing but value, man. This was completely worth it. So I uh, would love to see you come back on anytime when the schedules roll out again and hopefully we run into you in person at another event in the future. Yeah, would uh, would love for that to happen. And I'm sure we will definitely run into each other at an event in the future. So thank you. That's it for this week's episode. If you liked what you heard, share it with one friend or post it on social. It helps others find the show. New episodes of Bare Knuckles and Brass Tacks drop every Monday. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Air France lost my shit. So. Oh, you travel with your mic? And they yes, lost it. I, we, we both we both have travel kits with Mike podcasts because we might like last week we were recording in two different hotels or Airbnb. Yeah. yeah, 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 for sure. Um, Hardcore. Yeah, I'm excited about your new gig too. I haven't talked to you since that, but looks yeah. good, George K. Yeah, Looking, uh, George, how's my, how's my sound quality, buddy? It's okay. But then it rubs against your beard and it just sounds like tinfoil on the mic. Uh, so just, I'll hold it like this. Yeah. 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 That's good. Yeah.